0: Any seasoned traveler will tell you. Some places are just bad. Their very existence as a toxic waste dump, a restaurant with a history of food poisoning, or an Airbnb full of clown dolls spells harm for the visitor. There's nothing in particular to be done about bad places except to steer clear of them and, if you find yourself there, to get out quick. But what if you can't? What if you have to pass through? What if you have to stay? Worse, what if the bad place doesn't look bad to the naked eye? I want to tell you about one of those places. It's a little north of Orlando, Florida and Sanford, right at the border of Seminole and Volusia counties. You'll find it as you're heading north on I-4, just before you cross Lake Monroe. This small section of highway is a kind of psychic void Not because of anything that can be seen or heard, but because of something that is embedded deep in the highway's history. It is a history of death. Thousands of traffic fatalities have occurred on this spot, giving rise to its nickname, the I-4 Dead Zone. All new tonight, it's the deadliest interstate in the U.S. and some of you probably take it every day. I've We're talking right now, about I-4. I-4. just name the most dangerous highway in America. What do
1: you think about I-4? Crazy. I-4 is Death Road with 1.25 fatalities per we mile. We all know
2: what a horror show I-4...
0: It is also a history of unexplained events. Drivers have reported strange apparitions, inexplicable static on the radio strange voices on cell phone calls.
1: I was about halfway out there in Sanford, Seminole County, and it was kind of foggy and misty, but nothing too bad. There was not one other car except for me. I remember I was listening to the radio, and it just went out. All of a sudden, I see this flash cross in front of my car. It was a small, glowing figure, and it moved like a child. It, it happened so fast, I just knew there was something in front of my car. And before
0: To some, traffic fatalities in the I-4 dead zone might not seem out of the ordinary. A 2010 study by regional planners found that, while the dead zone had a significantly higher ratio of fatalities to accidents when compared to other sections of I-4, It did not rank the highest on fatality or accident rates themselves. Indeed, traffic fatalities are a problem across the United States. Even with a huge decline in traffic volume during 2020, the traffic fatality rate increased by 24%, the largest one-year spike in 96 years. Yet, as others see it, the I-4 dead zone isn't just a poorly engineered stretch of highway. It's built on cursed land. How cursed? Even before Florida bought the rights to build I-4, the land underneath the dead zone was nicknamed the Field of the Dead. In the 1880s, it had been home to St. Joseph's, a colony of German Catholic immigrants, many of whom perished from the yellow fever. The legend has it that efforts to relocate or otherwise desecrate their grave sites have been met with fatal blowback. A farmer's house mysteriously burns down. An amateur archaeologist's child is killed. You get the picture, but highway engineers had little time for superstition. And so while the St. Joseph's graves were initially marked for relocation, they were soon forgotten and paved over the dead zone was born. Now, no traffic study, however, sophisticated can prove that the supernatural is really at work here. And the I four corridor doesn't even really make for good ghost hunters TV. It's not exactly an abandoned sanitarium or a haunted house, but there is something going on here, and it can't be captured with maps and statistics. A specter that haunts not just East Central Florida, but lurks beneath many sections of the American Interstate. It's waiting for us, just beyond the glow from gas stations, fast food chains, and the colonies of motels just to the right of The Last Exit.
1: With the passage by Congress of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, the national system of interstate and defense highways got underway. Wait, wait. What is this big road? Where is it going? How much has been built? much is yet
0: to come. You're listening to The Last Exit, a podcast about the occult history of American infrastructure. I'm Phil Rocco. And I'm David Reinecke. This is the tale of the Dead Zone.
1: Pennsylvania Turnpike, once a dream of a few far-seeing men, is now a reality. Less than two years after construction was started, the 160 mile concrete limited way was open to traffic.
0: It's hard to travel on the Pennsylvania Turnpike without feeling at least some small sense of wonder, as the ribbons of asphalt carry you through the Appalachian Mountains from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg, sometimes in long stretches of tunnels, on through the farms of Lancaster and Reading to the lights of Boathouse Row in Philadelphia. Of course, the wonder doesn't last long. Poor maintenance, traffic, and ever-increasing tolls, they make the Futurama tone of old newsreels sound kind of ridiculous. And like all infrastructure, you can certainly take I-76 for granted. Yet it's that taken-for-granted quality of highways that lends them a sense of the supernatural, too. If something feels too massive to have been built by humans alone, one might start to wonder about what other forces are at work. It's why you get conspiracy theorists who believe that an extinct civilization of so-called Tartarians built St. Paul's Cathedral in London, among many other modern-day structures. And these people are true believers. But conspiracies aside, David and I have been obsessed merely with the possibility of an occult history of American transportation.
2: Where did this podcast come from? What was the inspiration for this podcast, would you say?
0: We both liked
2: True Detective uh, Season 1, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a curious I mean, origin for a infrastructure podcast, wouldn't you say?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, look.
2: Why should I live in history, huh?
1: I don't want to know anything anymore. This is a world where nothing is solved. Someone once told me time is a flat circle.
0: It had this wonderful sense of the supernatural and the occult that, that felt very very American, very, very sort of organic. And I really loved it. And when the second season was being teased, mm-hmm. uh, they did this interview with Nick Pizzolato.
2: The writer and creator of the show.
0: Yeah, the, the creator of the show and there was all of this this sort of uh, tension and expectation, like Reddit was like blowing up, what is the second season gonna be about? And they interviewed him and he said, well, I'm not gonna tell you too much, but what I can tell you is that this is going to be uh, a season about hard women, bad men, and the occult
2: history of the American transportation system. Which, when we heard that, I remember actually, if, if we can transport ourselves back to 2015, 2016. <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> I, like, yeah. this is this is everything we've always wanted in a television show. The first season's riding on the highest of highs, and for the second season, you know, no more sophomore slump. We're gonna get exactly what we've always wanted: the occult history of the federal transportation system. Oh my gosh! Yeah, catnip, catnip
0: to a person like you and me. And then the second season came out, and it was really aggressively not that. Um, it was a pretty. <laughs> Standard sort of true crime uh, show. Uh, there was a conspiracy. Right. It
2: ended up being kind of a warmed-over Chinatown. It ended up yeah. Re- that's re-playing right. Replaying a, a kind of plot or a story that we've seen dozens of times before.
0: Right. And and you know the the first episode of, of that season starts off with with all of this sort of portent. There's a there's a killing in the episode which looks like it could sort of be ritualistic. There's all these flyovers of highways. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't really get uh, any anything like that story. What you get is Vince Vaughn saying lines that are supposed to have the same sort of philosophical uh, import as Matthew McConaughey's in season one, and then they just don't hit.
1: Someone's trying to tell me that it's all paper mache.
0: For whatever reason, when. Pizzolatto made that statement. Something resonated with me, which is gonna this is gonna sound really weird. Um,
2: <laughs> take, take us there, Phil.
0: The and it, this is something. This is like a memory I, I think I had suppressed until I read that interview with Pizzolatto. Um, <laughs> but when I was a kid, I watched Looney Tunes a lot, and there's this one cartoon, and I had forgotten it for years. Um, but it's a really weird and really dark, disturbing. Uh, Looney Tunes cartoon. There's no bugs in it. There's no Daffy. Um, you know, none of the standard characters are in it. And it's like a six minute reel. Uh, and it's called their auto be a law. And it's a history of the car and the interstate highway system, which was, re- and I think it was released right around the time that the 1956 uh, Federal Aid Road Act like passed.
2: So bizarre.
1: The story of the development of the automobile is truly a remarkable
0: one.
2: Do you think this was like the Looney Tunes, like they were commissioned by General Motors to create some kind of industrial cartoon?
0: Well, the funny thing about it, though, is like the it's really negative. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's the vision that it presents of like what highways are is like really, really dark. And like one of the characters, uh, this recurring character is this meek. Sort of dude with like glasses, sort of like a Mr. Magoo mm-hmm. kind of character, who's voiced by Mel Blanc. And in, in the in the little reel, like all of this terrible stuff keeps happening to me. Like he gets hit by a car. He gets towed, but then his car frame gets ripped off. Uh, he's just like sitting there. His car gets like crushed in various ways. But then there's this one scene, and this one scene like really stuck with me as a kid. It really like got to me. And I don't know why. So he's on this like clover leaf. Yeah. And they do this like clover leaf. From, from above, which it looks really like, it's like a Mobius strip, like it's people just keep going round and round. And It's he the stops off it's, it's
2: like the snake eating its own tail.
0: <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. right? And so he like gets off the side and he asks this guy at a hamburger stand, like, you know, can I have directions off the freeway? And eventually like the guy at the hamburger stand sort of reveals is like, yeah, I don't actually know how to get off the freeway. I've been here for 10 years and I opened this hamburger stand to keep myself from starving. Come
1: to think of it, you can't get off of it from here. Same thing happened to me ten years ago. I'd open this hamburger stand to keep from starving to death. Hamburgers! Get your hamburgers here!
2: Get your. Mustard. <laughs> that is that is that is so frightening, Phil. <laughs> it's so dark to, to and, to, and to, like to think about like you know showing that to children like <laughs> the futility of leaving modernity, the futility of escaping modern infrastructure, um, the idea that once you get onto a road, you can't get off of it. The purgatory of the highway—frightening
0: stuff. There's some aspect of highways that, while they're built by humans, also sort of feels very inhuman. Right. um, Is where that link to the
2: occult kind of makes sense, and and I think it's or that long after we're gone, you know, these roads will still be here.
1: Pardon me, sir, but could you tell me how to get back on the highway? I've been trying to get off this thing for hours. Why, short? You go right on down that way. Just keep bearing to the right.
2: If you if you were to imagine the occult history of the federal transportation system, you were to try and find the the horror within that system. It's probably more akin to something like that than it would be a standard tale of, of corruption in Southern California.
0: <laughs> well, right. It, it, it's it's something about the inhumanity um, of the system that was designed by. Uh, humans, right? The sense that once you construct something, it begins to feel larger uh, than life and really out of human control. It's that
2: classic sort of fear of of technology, which I think goes back a, quite quite a long time. Sure, w- once things are set in motion we begin to lose control of this. Rather than the standard story that you'd see in something like Chinatown or Who Framed Roger Rabbit or, you know, True Detective Season 2, which is you dig to the bottom of this technological system and what you find is kind of standard stories of political corruption or human greed or uh, human incompetence. This is something very different than that. There's no humanity to be found if you were to get to the bottom of it.
0: If we want to understand the occult roots of the interstate highway system, we first have to get a few myths out of the way. Highways have always provoked speculation and conspiracy. One of my favorite things that swirled around the American far-right radio dial in the 1950s was the idea that the interstate highway system was a Trojan horse for Fabian socialism. I wonder how the Chamber of Commerce and the AAA felt about that one. But it lives on today in a slightly different form. In 2007, right-wing conspiracy theorists pushed the idea that Texas Governor Rick Perry's plan for a trans-Texas corridor highway was actually a plot to create the North American Union, a single nation consisting of Canada, Mexico, and the United States with a currency called the Amero. A more common myth is the idea that President Eisenhower pushed for creating the interstate highway system solely because he wanted to be able to evacuate cities if the U.S. were attacked by an atomic bomb.
1: After putting these facts and requirements before you, I shall propose a program of action. A program that will demand the energetic support of not just the government, but every American, if we are to make it successful.
0: In reality, looking at the politics of how the system was created, you see that its main supporters were focused on economic development, getting goods to market, developing commercial and residential real estate, reducing traffic congestion, standard post-war capitalist fare. True, the 1956 legislation was called the National System of Interstate and Defense Highways, but the plans for the system far preceded the existence of the bomb, and indeed the Cold War itself. And no, it's not the case that one in every five miles of interstate highway is straight so that airplanes can land on them in case of emergencies, although I admit that would be kind of cool. Finally, numerologists love to speculate about the significance of the interstate numbering system, including, and perhaps especially, Route 666, which is also a 2001 movie starring a worse-for-wear Lou Diamond Phillips.
2: The sword is closed. This sort is off-limits to everyone. Open fire, boy! Not for taking
1: all these old back roads, Jack, just not this one.
0: There was, yes, a Route 666 in the Southwest. It was not numbered by satanic priests, but by engineers. Created in 1926, it was branch number six of the famed U.S. Route 66. Nevertheless, the name held a dark significance for many, and furnished much speculation over the years that the highway was cursed. Its series of sharp curves and a reputation for traffic fatalities didn't help matters any. Public outcry was in fact so extensive that in 2003, the New Mexico State Legislature passed a memorial resolution requesting a new route name, noting that residents along the highway lived under a cloud of opprobrium, and that there were people who refused to travel the road, not because of the issue of safety, but because of the fear that the devil controls events along United States Route 666. In short, the devil was bad for economic development, and so the route was renumbered as a spur of US-191, Route 491. But debunking these myths and legends doesn't get us any further towards understanding the mystery of the I-4 Dead Zone, to do that, we have to understand how the interstate highway system was created and how it works. Our story begins be long before the Cold War intrigue of the Eisenhower administration, way back at the beginning of the 19th century, when most roads were built inefficiently and poorly by private hands. The federal government tried, frequently unsuccessfully, to construct national transportation infrastructure, the most famous piece of which was the National Road, completed in 1837, which connected the Potomac and Ohio Rivers, a sort of gateway to the western frontier. Plans for further expansion of the road were scuttled, however, when the funding ran dry in 1838. By the early 20th century, the emergence of the car and the spectacular rise in car traffic brought with it another burst of federal action. The Federal Aid Road Act, signed into law in 1916, provided the first federal aid for state highway construction, transforming what had been countless miles of muddy trails into paved roads. But connecting the system of state built and federally financed roads proved difficult. As then General Dwight Eisenhower wrote in 1919, as he traveled in a military convoy across the country, half of the distance was traveled over dirt roads, wheelpaths, desert sands, and mountain trails. As in so many American stories, the new tech outpaced the infrastructure necessary to make it work. And while capitalists wanted to socialize the costs of producing the new infrastructure, they were somewhat less comfortable about kicking in their share. As car travel proliferated, efforts to build highways were bogged down in battles over financing. Trucking companies, for example, wanted the government to pay for new roads, but didn't want to bear the brunt of financing them through gasoline taxes. Even when the federal government gained greater capacity for central planning during the New Deal in World War II, the question of who was going to pay for new roads and who was going to plan them resulted in gridlock. The National Highway Users Conference, an industry group founded by the chairman of General Motors, complained about food spoilage from long travel times and delays and increases in traffic accidents a near-crisis situation, they said, by the 1950s. But because road users did not want to spend more than two cents a gallon more for gas, there was not much of a chance of solving the crisis. To solve this problem, the Eisenhower administration proposed financing the interstate through a federal bond issue, but fiscal conservatives in Congress balked and rejected the bill. Instead, Tennessee Senator Al Gore Sr. and Louisiana Representative Hale Boggs forward legislation creating a highway trust fund, that drew on an increased gas tax, allowing the federal government to foot 90% of the cost of highway construction. In turn, state highway engineers working with local planning officials would have the lion's share of responsibility for designing interstate routes, and this is how we got I-4. But it's only part of the story.
1: In this century, America has become a nation on wheels. We ride on wheels to work, to shop, to play, to go about any place we want to go.
0: You see, the interstate highway system, despite all its futurist luster, had a seedy underbelly. At the heart of the system was a bargain among federal, state, and local officials. On the one side, the federal government foot most of the bill. On the other, state and local governments would be free to site roads where they wanted to, creating every incentive for governors and mayors to construct a superabundance of highways, extending into American cities, out to undeveloped land, the site of countless future suburban subdivisions.
1: A meeting will come to order. This is a public hearing on the location of Improved U.S. Route 110 through Connor County in the vicinity of Connersville. Since federal funds will be used in this project, the law requires a public hearing to discuss the economic effect of the proposed
0: highway location. Decisions about highway planning had a veneer of democratic legitimacy, as you can hear in this clip from the 1956 movie Highway Hearing, financed by the highway lobby itself. A small town learns that it's to be bypassed for a new freeway that's due for construction.
1: It seems to me, Mr. Jacobson, that there's too much thought being given to other people. What about us, right here in Connorsville? Well, maybe I can help answer that question. My name's Henry Loomis, editor of the Connorsville Courier, but I'm speaking as chairman of the Traffic Improvement Council, which Mayor Spencer performed
0: They're initially incensed, but in a meeting that they attend, they watch a film within a film on the 1956 law and become convinced of the importance and efficacy of the planned national expressway system. Shouldn't
1: you give some thought as to what they'll mean to your children? Your children will have a better country to live in because of these new roads. Well, they'll be able to drive anywhere safely, even from coast to coast, without fear of in front of them, and and without fear of accidents, because the people that are planning and building these new roads are, are conforming The film to-
0: ends as it began, with a marching band and a ribbon-cutting ceremony, celebrating the new stretch of highway. In reality, state highway engineers had far more power to set the agenda for highway construction, and local residents, especially those outside of the white business community, were cut out of decision-making altogether. In Sanford, Florida, those cut out of the deal included the landowner on whose property those German immigrants were buried and over which I-4 was subsequently built. According to the documented accounts, land surveyors made an executive decision to ignore the graves and build over them. One engineer is reported to have said, it's not an ancient Indian burial ground, they're just a few old bones. On the day the engineers dumped dirt fill over the graves, the deadly Hurricane Donna took an unexpected turn and struck the area. So began the Dead Zone's history of destruction. Or so locals say. I have to admit, there's some poetic justice in this beyond-the-grave backlash to economic development, but I'm not inclined to believe that I-4's high accident-fatality ratio is attributable to a curse but the conventional explanations for the dead zone are also each unsatisfying in their own ways. The explanation that first came to my mind was just bad engineering, but that only gets us as far as 2004, when the accident-prone St. John's River Bridge, which lacked shoulders for disabled or wrecked vehicles to pull out of the flow of traffic, was replaced with two three-lane spans, each with wide shoulders on either side. Still, Even after significant engineering improvements, the dead zone remains one of the most dangerous stretches of highway in the country. Another popular explanation for the dead zone is just distracted driving. Florida hasn't exactly followed the trend of banning talking on the phone while driving, and texting and driving is just a secondary offense. Maybe easily distracted tourists flocking to Orlando's theme parks are part of the story. But several recent studies find little relationship between distracted driver laws and traffic fatality rates and in any case it would be hard to conclude that drivers along i4 are just more distracted than those in other parts of the country nor are those drivers more likely to be under the influence of drugs and alcohol in seminole county where the dead zone is drug or alcohol related traffic fatalities are typically on par with the rest of the state sanford florida itself doesn't look so different from the rest of the United States. Its population is a bit younger and a bit poorer than average and youth and poverty are risk factors for vehicular fatalities. But still, there's something off here. No, I don't mean that we have to accept local lore for what it is. Twice told tales about ghostly truckers, weird orbs, disembodied voices. Take them as seriously as you want to. But if they're true, the sin has already been committed. So, be ready to call the local exorcist, excavate the land underneath the highway, and rebury the bones on consecrated ground, and then just hope that fatalities subside. If that sounds ridiculous, maybe it's because, in our quest to control the world, we tend to privilege explanations of it that center on our own interventions, which change the course of history. For example, we know that traffic fatality rates have plummeted since the birth of the motor vehicle, improved safety features in cars and on the roads, better emergency response times and fewer drunk drivers, all of those things make it less deadly to take that weekend getaway. But since 2011, traffic fatalities nationwide started moving in the wrong direction, increasing almost every year. In 2020, the number was up to 42,000 traffic-related deaths per year. There is no one easily recognizable explanation for this. It's not a story about demographics, or regions like East Central Florida, or even vengeful spirits. Fatalities are up across the country, and there's no one clean fix. According to the Road to Zero Coalition, a national group of highway safety advocates, we could change this if we wanted to, even getting to zero deaths by the year 2050, by taking a safe system approach to re-engineering both cars and
2: roads. The road to zero will accelerate the development of advanced driver assistance systems, or ADAS. Human drivers are fallible. Drivers are tired. Drivers are impaired. Drivers are distracted. Smart machines are not. The Coalition's plan has the same
0: futurist ring to it we see in old film reels of interstate construction, only it relies on a slightly deeper understanding of the psychological relationship between man and road. But as long as traffic fatalities continue to rise, and as long as they are unevenly distributed, the lore of places like the Dead Zone will linger, if only to distract us from the reality of human fallibility and the illusion of control. And perhaps because the highways themselves, or even the commerce we use them for, feel far too large, their power is too mysterious to change. And this makes a kind of sense. Between 1959 and the early 1970s, decisions about highways vastly reorganized American life. Expressways made it possible for real estate developers to lure white, working-class city dwellers to the suburbs. And, sexy as they were to planners, expressways in cities threatened to displace millions and wall off primarily poor, black neighborhoods, or otherwise submerge them under dark, dank highway overpasses. What's more, the federal government had already rejected an urban policy that explicitly integrated decisions about highways with housing. So if you were displaced by a highway, you were out of luck. Look at photos of your current city before and after expressway construction and you'll see what I mean. For many local politicians and real estate developers, massively displacing residents and segregating them was as much of a solution as it was a problem. If highways had to displace someone, it was not going to be the residents of wealthy white city neighborhoods. Rather, it was going to be black residents, the people who the propaganda movies made by the highway lobby conveniently excluded. James Baldwin distilled the problem in a 1963 discussion with Kenneth Clark.
1: In San Francisco told me on television, thank God we got him to talk. Maybe somebody will start to listen. He said, I got no country, I've got no flag. Now he's only 16 years old. And I couldn't say you do. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging, as most northern cities now are engaged, in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is an accomplice to this fact. Now this, we're talking about human beings. There's not such a thing as a monolithic, wall or, you know, some abstraction called the Negro problem, these Negro boys and girls who at 16 and 17 don't believe the country means anything that it says and don't feel they have any place here on the basis of the performance of the entire country. But now, Jim— now, am I exaggerating? No, I certainly could not say that you're exaggerating.
0: All of this discussion brings us back to I-4. You see, I-4 is like a Rosetta Stone for understanding the entire interstate system. In the 1950s, Florida was booming, thanks to the Cold War defense industry, and probably the popularization of the home air conditioner. Almost no other state matched its velocity of economic growth, and only California attracted more residents in the 1950s. Orlando was a crucial hub, not far from the new space installation at Cape Canaveral, as well as what tourist brochures referred to as sugar white beaches, emerald water, and eternal sunshine.
1: The rapid growth of Orlando with its attendant population explosion brought many new problems. However, utilities and other public service facilities have been expanded to meet the needs of the expanding city's growth. There are improved highways into the city from all directions. In
0: 1954, after conducting an $11,000 survey on transportation mobility, Florida's State Road Department recommended an elevated limited access highway running through the cities of Orlando and Winter Park. In predominantly white Winter Park, residents and local officials successfully campaigned against the siting of I-4, pushing the expressway back to the city's outskirts. Yet residents of Orlando's predominantly black Paramore neighborhood had no such luck. The expressway engineering company Howard, Needles, Tammen, and Bergendorf approved a detailed plan displacing around 551 properties in Paramore. By the end of the 1950s, the elevated expressway had cut off access from Paramore to downtown Orlando. And by 1974, the new 408 highway further divided the area, destroying over a thousand homes. The population of Paramore plummeted, unemployment increased. Paramore and the surrounding neighborhoods became another kind of I-4 dead zone, though a far less spectral one. Average life expectancy in Paramore is now roughly 10 years lower than the surrounding county, and it's no surprise why. The neighborhood is surrounded by two major highways, There's little tree cover to buffer the noxious car fumes that have led to a rise in respiratory ailments for residents of the neighborhood. County and state agencies have conducted studies suggesting that the air quality is moderate to good, but these studies have failed to measure ultrafine particles and black carbon, the clearest indicators of pollution near major roadways. Here's LaToya Lee, a Paramore community member who died of cardiac arrest the day after this interview was conducted. She'd complained of respiratory problems for years related to pollution in the neighborhood.
1: I just hope that nobody else gets sick from any of this. And the sad thing about it is when I leave from out of here and go somewhere else, like to the new house, I've been in there and just sat in there. I can breathe fine, I'm not short of breath, none of that. And I've actually noticed that the last two times that I've left here and gone to the new house. So it's a lot going on with the air around here. It's a
0: lot. If there's a real dead zone on I-4, it's here. A neighborhood encircled by generations of racial violence, and now two freeways and a Superfund cleanup site. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's not the work of spectral figures with unfinished business, but human hands. There's no conspiracy driving the outcome. No secret cabal meeting at Bohemian Grove. Instead... It was the result of forces that are relatively well-known to us, the twin engines of racism and capitalism, supported with the full force of government. In exchange for more interconnected cities and towns, and an increase in economic growth, the U.S. got even starker racial, economic, and political divisions, fueled by suburbanization in metropolitan areas and the reinforcement of racial segregation within city centers. Miles of asphalt and a relentless car culture, needless to say helped to make the US a leading contributor to climate change. And, as in most deals with the devil, the devil won big. Commute times continue to increase, and traffic, despite the promises of the highway lobby, has only gotten worse. Adding more roads doesn't relieve the problem, it simply encourages people to drive more. We're all on a treadmill which just runs perpetually. Now, if all of this seems obvious, why do conspiracy theories or ideas about the occult roots of the highway system remain, or at the very least, why do they linger in my mind? The reason, I think, is that the myths and metaphors we use to describe how American democracy works, taught to us in the earliest moments of our civic education, leave us unprepared to understand what power really is, as highways displace millions and choke the residents of places like Paramore, and as traffic fatalities on the road increase and traffic piles up, The question of who to blame, and how to reverse the pattern, becomes more and more remote. The weight of history compounds on itself. Power grows more abstract, the narrative somehow more convoluted. If there's anything that feels like a malevolent spirit, it's that sense of fatalism that lurks at the edges of the infrastructure debate today. Confronted with the feeling of an inhuman, supernatural force, we're left with a gaping void of explanation, in which we grope around for metaphors, stories, and often conspiracy theories. But one can know the void exists while still being trapped by it, caught like the motorist in the Looney Tunes reel, never able to get off the highway. Or, it's far easier anyway, to build a highway, than it is to tear it down, as Robert Moses said. But there have been moments of resistance. You can see the remnants of one of them in the Montlake neighborhood in Seattle, south of 520 and to the east of I-5. There you'll see some forlorn-looking highway ramps going nowhere. They're the remnants of the defunct R.H. Thompson Expressway, a project for which Seattle approved bond issues in 1960. But soon after the wheels were set in motion, neighborhood and environmental activists formed a community group, the Citizens Against the R.H. Thompson. City
1: Council, uh, you want to build a white highway through the black community to get to your big fine homes and your big neighborhoods through a black community, which we will not have. That's all. Over
0: the ensuing decade, the Anti-Expressway Coalition, which included University of Washington students, neighborhood activists, and members of the Black Panther Party, pushed back on what they called concrete dragons taking over the city.
1: My name is Kathy Howard, and I'm from the Black Panther Party. I'm from the black community. Like the brother said a minute ago, the only people that are being served by this freeway uh, in the long run are the people in power, and the people that are being affected by the freeway have not been asked about it. The people in the black community have not been consulted about it. Why were not people talk about it? I had to tell my mother about it. Nobody knew about this hearing. What we're confronted with now is a representative of the people, our city council, being intimidated by the highway department on the basis of a particular type of highway that they want to put in your...
0: City. They raised hell at city council meetings, protested in the streets, and tanked bond issues at the polls. By 1970, the Thompson Expressway had become the political equivalent of toxic sludge, and the city council voted 7-2 to to erase it from its comprehensive plan. Freeway revolts like this one fanned out across the country during the 1960s and 1970s, from San Francisco to Baltimore. But by 1973, they had generally run their course. New legislation placed more restrictions on highway builders, but highway interests pushed back in a variety of ways, including defending against efforts to divert additional money to mass transit systems. A small handful of huge freeway teardown efforts remain, the most notable of which was Boston's Big Dig, an almost awe-inspiring multi-decade project that rerouted the Central Artery Highway which had bisected the city, into the Tip O'Neill Tunnel, simultaneously extending the I-90 under Boston Harbor to the Logan Airport and building out the Bunker Hill Memorial Bridge over the Charles River. This project, in civil engineering terms, was the equivalent of going to the moon. I and mean, It's sort of staggering to think about. But for every freeway revolt or reconstruction, there remained countless instances of stasis. So if all of this is true, right, if, if the real story isn't like chinatown and if the real story is also not the good stuff that would make for good television or or film why did this project that pizzolato talks about and you know the potential for true detective season two why did that feel right
2: to us though i think i think there's a deep resonance with this kind of thinking this kind of conspiratorial thinking this kind of the paranoid style in american politics where in the face of perceived powerlessness in the, in the face of political gridlock, in the face of these massive systems that seem like they have their own kind of internal momentum, it's much easier to believe there are these smoke-filled rooms with corrupt people or some kind of hidden order or, or hidden motivation than to see that, oh, in fact, we reproduce these systems on a daily basis through our economic decisions, political decisions, etc. It's a deep well that we go back to again and again and again um, because it feels good. Right. Rather than kind of own up to the fact that we we are the people who are making these things happen.
0: Well, I actually think that that very thing is why it feels right to talk about an occult history, because if we think about a cult as being something that's hidden and concerning forces that we don't feel we have control over or know, that very thing, that very dynamic of highways being produced not only by a shadowy lobby, but by these demands that we feel uh, as part of the like the hedonic treadmill of capitalism uh, that's causing us. You know, we we want not just like one Disney theme park, but like eight of them, and uh, you know, you know, we want not just like one hotel at Disney World, but we want like seven with like different uh, themed sort of pavilions. different flavors, like, yeah, right. Uh, it's it's that kind of process which can feel very. At large, very sort of mysterious and, and very difficult uh, to control, in a way that I think makes it credibly occult. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to make a show with the the villain being like a sort of uh, part of a, a cabal or like a conspiracy. Um, but I do think that there's there's actually a sense in which that process um, of uh, economic development can feel supernatural um it can feel like you're you're all you all have your hands on like the ouija planchette and like you don't know who is moving it um and you don't know who can stop it and i think that is actually something that's genuinely terrifying all infrastructure is a cult not true detective season one occult or illuminati occult but occult occult which is to say easily hidden or obscured it always hides itself erases its own history becomes a part of the scenery. That's what makes it feel inhuman, larger than life, impossible to change, or out of control, even supernatural. But the history of the interstate highway system is a history of people acting on the scenery, and rearranging it, too. The challenge is summoning the power to make infrastructure work towards the good of all people who dwell within it, and short-circuiting its more dehumanizing tendencies. None of this makes for a convenient story. We're left to sort through compiled memories, scraps of evidence, guesses, and partial histories. We never get the whole story of how we got from there to here, because it constantly destroys itself with each new pylon and roadbed constructed. But we have no choice except to piece it together. Otherwise, we'll just be caught in the loop. The Last Exit is hosted by me, Phil Rocco, and David Reineke, who writes and performs our theme music. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.